really nice to always get to see all of you. It's nice to see people who I haven't seen in a while. It's nice to see people who I see regularly. It's awesome. Um, and I hope you guys are in this worship center or worship service um, expecting something. Not from people, expecting something from God. I hope you guys really understand like when before God even created the earth and the heavens, he has said particular things in our lives, including today, us gathering in this hall and us, like the exact number of people that we are being in this place, including the conditions in which we come to worship. God is that, that detailed in his, in his acts and who he is. And he has figured out every thought in our hearts, what we're going to think later on, he knows. He has figured out what we're wearing today. He has figured out what was exciting to us yesterday. He has figured out what we're thinking today. So I just want us to be completely free from just everything else, from, I don't know, this hidden existence that we may have that people may not be able to see because the Lord can see our hearts. And he has decided to bring us to this worship service in this particular way today. So I hope you go out of what is physical. You go out of what is normal. You go out of what is in this world to see what the Lord wants to do uh, in our lives today. With that said, I want us to pray. I want us to go into the word that we are going to be sharing today. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness, for your love, for your mercy, all the things that you do for us that are beyond our thinking and our ability to comprehend. We just bring ourselves to you today. I pray that you just arrest us, that you just take our minds off of the things that we care about that have nothing to do with you towards the things that are meaningful in your sight. I pray that your spirit may move us. I pray that your spirit may speak to us. I pray that our hearts may be in tune with your word. I pray that what you're going to do among us, what you've been doing among us this very morning, may be transformative, may be knowledge given to us that we didn't have before. It may be powerfully pouring the Spirit of God into our hearts. It may be a, an answer to the questions that we have, that it may be a situation in which we ask the right questions, that we, it will lead us to you to ask further questions, that we may understand what the way of life is, and that we may live fully, joyfully. So Father, I pray you tune our hearts to your word today, and that you focus us on you, that we may have a proper worship that transforms us and gives us joy. Father God, speak to each one of us, open our hearts, including me, that we may hear from you, live according to your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I will ask all of you, stop, okay. You, yeah. Um. I will ask all of us to get up so we can uh, we can read the scripture for today.
is going to be John 8, the Gospel of John 8, verses 31 all the way to 38. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in me, uh, sorry, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The, uh, they answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Please be seated. I don't know how many of you guys remember um, how many times I have mentioned that verse preaching in the years in the past. It's I would say it represented about seventy percent of my preaching ended with that verse, basically. So you might, but I never got around to talking about it. So you might be asking, dude, why are you just mentioning the same scripture every time? What's what does that mean even? Right? Like, you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. The people in this place did not think it mattered. They're like, free from what? We're Israeli people. We have never been enslaved. Right? And you, as Americans, might be saying, this is the land of the free, home of the brave. What are you talking about? I'm free. I could do whatever I want. What if I told you, you are not? Actually, the people that think that they're free the most are actually the most enslaved people. The people that actually do whatever they want, whenever they want, is actually the most enslaved people on the planet. There's lots of people in third world countries who are living under physical oppression that are more freer than people who are in this country. I can tell you that much. So what does that mean exactly? So before we engage with this scripture, I want us to see what the Lord is trying to do in this place. I want us to get to know what the context of what he's talking about really is. Ah, Sorry. So in order to do that, you have to flip back to chapter um, 5. So if you go back in your scriptures in John chapter 5, there's an incident that actually changes the ministry of Jesus from just him openly preaching to people to a place where people want to kill him for his preaching and for the miracles that he was doing and for the things that he was saying to people. Every gospel has that point, and it's different. In the gospel of John, is chapter 5. And it, it, it boils down to one incident in the Gospel of John, right? And that is the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, right? From that point on, 
people wanted to kill him. What did he do? So if you go to chapter 5, the first thing that you see is a man that was sick and he had no one to help him and he has been sick for years and Jesus has compassion on him and he heals him, but he heals him on the Sabbath and he tells him to carry his mat and walk with his mat on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees see him and they're angry. Why are you walking carrying something? Because it's the Sabbath, you cannot do work. Who told you to do this? And he tells them, Jesus. That's where the story begins. And because of that, they wanted to kill him. Did Jesus do it? Because, you know, like, he just said, carry your mat and go because he forgot about the Sabbath. No, he did it intentionally. Is he doing it to provoke people? No. But Jesus came to die, not to live. Jesus came to die for sinners so that we might be saved. So he did it on purpose. He knows this is going to end up making people angry at him who are religious instead of faithful to God. And this happens. So in John 5, so why do you allow people to work on Sabbath is the question they had. John 5, 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking to kill him he says, to, seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making him, him equal to God. So you have the recording right there where John witnesses what happened. Not only is he breaking the Sabbath and they're angry at this, the problem is, Jesus says, when they ask him, why do you allow the Sabbath to be broken? He's like, my father is still working. My father is supposed to be resting on the seventh day and beyond. But he's still working because mankind fell instead of taking on our responsibilities. We fell for sin and we couldn't take care of the, the universe anymore, the planet anymore. So God has to still work. God has to be an arbiter between us. God has to still save the poor from being destroyed by the powerful. He still has to do work. So Jesus says, I'm working too. There is no Sabbath yet according to God's word here. But the problem is, he said, my father is working in such a way that declares that he is God himself. The Jews were not confused about it. We might be because we speak English, but they knew exactly what he was saying and they were not happy about that. Can you imagine this? If someone just walked into this room and was like, I'm God, I'm actually his son. What is the first reaction that you would have as a Christian? It would be, that's blasphemy. No, you're just a man. You're just a person. That's what they are angry about. But in their culture, you don't just say, no, you're just a man. We can do nothing to you because there is a, the police. No, you stone him to death. That's, that's exactly how it works. You just kill the person who claims to be God because there is only one God. So they, they are mixing like human culture with God's law. Because if they really heard Jesus, if they really saw what Jesus is doing, they would have seen God in him. Because he is God. But they're judging him based on their tradition and executing God's judgment on him as if they were making 
righteous judgments of Jesus. So this is where his ministry goes south, basically. From this point on, Jesus had to be really careful because everybody wanted to kill him in Galilee and especially in Jerusalem. So chapter 5 tells us that, and this, this wheel, this process starts of trying to kill Jesus. In chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000 outside of that area. And then they end up, they see the signs and they see that he fed them out of nothing, basically, just a few fish and bread. And they decide to make him king. So he walks away from them. He withdraws from them, it says, and he disappears. And when he returns, he has a conversation with him, with them. They were trying to find him all night long. They were just seeking him. And then finally they found him and they say, teacher, where have you been? We've been looking all over for you. And his response is, you shouldn't work this hard for bread, for food. You're not following me because you saw a sign that leads to salvation. You're following me because you ate food and you like it. You were filled. If it's in our context, it's like following someone because you think they're rich and they can give you some money. It's like following someone because you think they're famous and they will make you famous if you hang out with them as well. Whatever it is. It's like following someone because they can give you some opportunities instead of following someone because you love them or you really want to have a genuine relationship with them. But anyways, he says, don't work for the food that perishes, work for the, the food that lasts for eternal life. And the first question they ask is, how can we do God, the work of God? And Jesus says, if you believe in the Son of God, if you believe in the Son of Man whom, Jesus, whom God has sent, that is the work of God. And the second thing he goes into is that bread of eternal life that he talked about. He says to them, unless you eat the flesh of man, uh, the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So this conversation went south because the people of Israel are not allowed to eat blood or drink blood. So they're just Every conversation that Jesus has with these people ends up in traditions. And like, they're just confused. They're always thinking about what is in their body, what is in their flesh, what is traditionally in front of them. It's like Jesus is talking to you and being uh, an Ethiopian guy. You're like, no, that's not our tradition. No, like, that's not what he's talking about. He's, he's going beyond your culture. He's going beyond the, the color of your skin. He's going beyond your social status. He's saying... I created you. There's a spiritual reality underneath life. You need to believe that God is your creator. We're not talking about eating and drinking and rules and stuff like that. We're talking about something much more deeper than that. Do you get it? As a Christian, I hope you do get it. And I know you do get it. They could not go deeper than the surface level. They couldn't. After this, many of his disciples turned back, it says, and no longer walked with him because he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no eternal life. You know what they didn't do? Ask, what do you mean, Jesus? What do you mean by that? Just like I said earlier, 
they followed the food and they wanted the fame and they wanted him to be in control of them because he's going to give them a secure life. They didn't care about Jesus. They didn't want to have a relationship with him. They didn't have any desire to be gentle and say, oh, I don't know what you mean by that. I want to know more. Can you tell me? They didn't even want to have a conversation with him is what it tells you. This is what sin does to us. We don't really care about people. We just have stuff that we want to say and we wait for moments to say those things in any conversation. But Jesus is teaching us, go deeper. Just be normal. Be genuine. Just be humble in a sense. Anyways, this story spirals. It gets worse and worse and worse. And of course, until it gets to the cross of Jesus. So this is the context we have. You know why I'm recounting all these chapters for you? Because all of these things that happened, they happened in eight days or nine days. Up to the point that I'm about to preach to you, it happened in nine days. It's called the Feast of Booths. It happens or the Feast of Tabernacles. That's the time in which all these things are happening. Jesus is doing this at the time of that feast. But eventually, when he proclaims this, a lot of people leave him. All the disciples almost leave him. Only the twelve remain, and he asks them, do you want to leave too? And they say, no, you have the words of eternal life. We are not going to leave anywhere. Peter says that as a representative, and Jesus says, "This, this is not your flesh saying what you're saying. It's the Spirit of God that's taking you deeper than the surface level. That's taking you beyond the traditions and the cultures or whatever is contemporarily in your culture. You need the Spirit of God to free you from being Ethiopian. You need the Spirit of God to free you from being American. You need the Spirit of God to free you from being your age, your gender, your color, whatever you are that you think you are. You need the Spirit of God to take you deeper than that. So that's what we have here. In chapter 7, as we get close to our text, after this, it says, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. That's how chapter 7 starts. But, I'm sorry, from this point on is when the eight days begin. Um, the Feast of Booths was at hand. That's chapter 7, verse 2. So Jesus stopped getting close to the area where they want to kill him, where it's close to uh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is inside Judea. Judea is like a state, let's say, and Jerusalem is a city. And there are many cities within Judea, so Jesus starts avoiding Judea. So he starts going through Samaria and the other regions in Israel. And we see that in the, in the beginning of chapter 7, his brothers ask him, why aren't you going to the Feast of Booths? If you're truly the Messiah, why don't you reveal yourself? And John comments, it's because his brothers, even his brothers did not believe in him at that time. So Jesus says to them, I'm not going. And then, but after his brothers had gone, that's verse 10, up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but privately. So he tells them, I'm not going, and he goes 
privately after they leave. Where? To the Feast of Boots. Where do you celebrate it? At the temple in, Jer in Jerusalem. He's at risk. He was avoiding Jerusalem, Judea overall. Now he has to go. He has a purpose for going. About the middle of the feast, it says, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. In the middle. The middle of the feast is like, you have seven days, three days into the feast. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is this man, how is, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? They were marveling at his teaching. They were, wow, this is amazing teaching. As we ourselves are witnesses as Christians, when we hear the Bible, when it communicates the truth to us, it's amazing. It's deeper than anything you've, we've ever heard, and we are mesmerized by it, how amazing it is. It doesn't sound like it's a bunch of experts writing to us in the Bible. It doesn't sound like it's impressive in human terms, yet it gets to the depth of our hearts that nothing else could get to, right? They're amazed. They're just like, this is surprising. This is not an expert in anything. This is not someone who went to college, let's say, in their perspective, who studied with the Pharisees. How is it that he's this knowledgeable, is their question. While he's preaching, that's what they're thinking. Jesus' response is, if anyone's will is to do the will uh, of God, he would know whether my teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. So Jesus is saying, if you really knew God's word, if you're really true followers of God as the people of Israel, if you were truly the people of God who know the law of God, you didn't even need to ask that question. You would know what I'm saying is from God. He says, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? So now Jesus is confronting people who are seeking to kill him on why they want to do that. When he's actually giving them the truth that God gave them in the Old Testament, in the law, when he's being the, when he's the person who's doing miracles to the poor and the neglected and the hated and the people that are sick, he's healing. When he's sinless, he hasn't committed any sin. He's asking them, why are you like responding to that with evil? Why are you even trying to take away my life? Why are you trying to kill me? And then the feast comes to an end in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up. And cried out, it says, who was, whoever wants to have food or whoever wants to have this living water, right? come, you can get it. And he was talking about the Spirit of God. Whoever wants to have a deep relationship with God, whoever wants to be saved, whoever wants to have eternal life that never ends, come to me. He cries this out. That's when this conversation we're having today is started. And some listen. Most people reject what he's saying. But he was actually proclaiming what is written in the book of Isaiah that God has communicated to his people that this Messiah, this prophet that is going to come is going to proclaim this thing. But we know the Spirit of God comes after Jesus' death and resurrection. So in chapter 8, the feast ends. 
Jesus has that conversation with people. Of course, I do recommend to you. I am scanning it so you can read it for yourself in one sitting. Um, he goes to the Mount of Olives. So he doesn't, he has a home. He was talking to his brothers at his house before he left for the, like the Feast of Booths. But he doesn't go home. He goes to the Mount of Olives. If you guys remember, the Mount of Olives is the place where he was arrested to be executed, right? That's what where Judas brought the people that were about to kill Jesus because he knows Jesus regularly goes to this place. So he literally sleeps outside that night and early in the morning, he came back to the temple again. Why? He was preaching. He wants to continue preaching as long as it is his time to preach. And the story of the woman that is caught in adultery is given to us in the beginning of chapter 8. And Jesus spoke to them again, it says, after that incident. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus is proclaiming, if you want holiness, if you want fellowship with God, if you want to be liberated, if you want to be freed from sin, basically, right, and corruption, come to me. I am the light of the world. I will, remo- like, I will free you from darkness. I will free you from slavery. And they respond to him. Again, as I said, they are stuck on the words. They are stuck on tradition. They are stuck on their own ability to think. They say, you're bearing witness about yourself, so your testimony is not true. Right? You're just prideful. You're just saying these things about yourself. You need another witness to say these things with you. Jesus says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. If something is true, whether I am the one saying it about myself or not, if it's true, it's true. What? That's what he's saying. But, It's not just me who says this, but my Father who sent me bears witness. Also, he says in verse um, 18, I believe. In verse 19, their question is, where is your Father? Again, they're stuck on, oh, so we have another witness? Where is he? Call him out. And Jesus responds with, you know neither me nor my Father, if you knew you would know my if you knew me you would know my father also he says so what is he saying to them you are the people of god you are the people of the god of israel and you don't know your own god how does he know cuz they don't understand who jesus is and jesus is the son of god jesus is god so if you knew me he says you would have i would have believed you when you said you know god Since you don't know me, you don't recognize me, there's no way you would have recognized God because God is with you, Emmanuel, right? So it's a very like back and forth. Jesus is speaking spiritual truth and they cannot grasp the spiritual side of what he's saying to them. It's like these people are Israelites, but they're not spiritual. That's sad. It's like being a Christian and showing up at church every week but you're just showing up to something that looks like school or, I don't know, club. There is nothing going on inside. There is nothing you grasp. Like, all of it makes no sense to you. It's like 
you don't get any joy out of it. It's like, can we get over with this? If you're doing that, I feel for you. Your life is going to end in a matter of a few decades. And then comes eternal death. It's not just going to end. You're going to pay for every evil that you've committed in this world forever, and you ain't going to stop paying for it. So if you're there, wake up. It might look like fun and games right now. It's not. That's what the conversation is about. That's what the actual slavery is about. You're just stuck in the physical realm. You're just stuck in immediate gratification. You can't see forward even a few years. Like, even logically speaking, for the physical life itself, you're kind of stuck to think about the future. That's what the problem here is. It's consistently happening. And that's one of the reasons why I went through all these chapters. In every chapter, these people who are supposed to be the people of God, who are supposed to be spiritual people, who are supposed to be informed by the law of God, are stuck in their bodily life, in their psychological life, in their own thoughts, in their own feelings, in their own preferences. Jesus is saddened by that. So Jesus says, he declares this. This is like the biggest judgment Jesus put on the people of Israel, period. It doesn't get any worse than this. He says to them, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sins. Where I'm going, you cannot come. You're not going to have eternal life. The God that you claim to worship now, you can't have life with him after this life. You can't. It doesn't work like that. You can't just be whatever you want and then end up with God. You don't want God. That's a scary thing. I don't know if this sobers you up or not. It does me. I don't know if this sobers you up or not. I'm preaching here because it sobered me up. I hope it does. Because it will save your life. Because it's not my words. It's the words of the living God. And he says to them, you know, like, because you know why you will die in your sins? Unless you believe that I am he, you will not, uh, sorry, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe Christ is the Messiah of God, Jesus says, you can't overcome the power of sin. You can't. You just can't get better on your own. You just can't. And there are no other remedies to get you better from being a sinner. And the wages of sin is death. You cannot escape death, is what he's saying. You know what they're stuck on? Who are you? Unless you believe I am he, he says to them, and they're stuck on who are you? They're not stuck on, wait, we can't overcome sin unless we believe in you? We are going to die unless we believe in you? Who are you? Like, can you tell us more? They're just saying, who are you? Why is believing in you a big deal? So John comments, they did not. Oh, sorry. Um, just what I've been telling you, Jesus says, from the beginning. Everything that I've been saying 
all these chapters that I've been communicating. He says, that's who I am. I've been telling you, you don't listen. So eventually he says to them, um, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me, and He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. So eventually he tells them, you know what? You guys are going to crucify me now. And then maybe then you will see the truth that I am the Messiah of God that he has sent, that, are, that is declared in, in the Old Testament. As he was saying these things, many believed in him is what is written to us. So all of that declaration, like unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. It wasn't, it wasn't brimstone and fire. It wasn't scary movie or something. He wasn't trying to pronounce judgment on people for no reason. He was just giving people the bottom line. You know what? Beyond this point, unless you believe, you're going to perish. Guess what? Many people wake up to that reality. Many people see, yeah, he's right. Like, if we go on like this, there's no hope for us. If we don't listen, there's no way to be changed. They realize that. Many people believe. This is the group of people whom he's talking to now. This is where we're going to see where the sermon is. So Jesus said to the Jews who have believed in him, mind you, many of those who turned back, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I mean, it says, the Jews who have believed in him. What, did you, what do you think they believed? Do you think they believed like he's going to die on a cross, and he's going to rise on the third day, and they're going to receive the Holy Spirit, and they're going to have an amazing Christian life? No, even his closest disciples, the 12, did not know that until the last day. Even after he rose, they didn't believe that. It's, it took time for them to know that. That's not what they believed. We know that, right? What did they believe? Did they believe he's the Messiah? Is that what they believed? No, the only thing they believed is, I hear this man, he sounds sincere. He's telling the truth. I don't see any reason why he's sinless. He's compassionate. He does all these signs. And he teaches according to the word of God. From the Old Testament, I can make a connection. I can see some truth in him. That's all they could believe. What else could they believe? That's all they got. What did you believe when you were first seen? You think you got it all down? You think you believe? Christ is more important to you than your phone right now? You think you believe Christ is more interesting than the, the one person that you follow closely? You think you believe the influence of your friends is just... Forget evil. Negligent compared to the value that you give to the influence of Christ? You think that's what you believe? No, that's not what you believe. And you will see that in this, in this chapter. 
They just believe Jesus is telling the truth to begin with. We can trust him. And the second thing they believe is Jesus is aligning with the Old Testament scriptures as far as they can tell a little bit for them. But they have no idea what Jesus is preaching exactly. They're not worried about that because they have to be a student to know what you are learning from this preacher, from this rabbi. You see, in the culture of Israel, when a rabbi comes to you and talks to you and tells you some truth, you don't imagine, oh, I got everything he's about to teach. I understand him. Okay, I believe in you. Bye. That's not how it works. When a teacher comes to you and tells you some truth, it's like signing up for college. It's like them telling you, you know what, if you go into this particular field, these are the things that you're going to study and this is your, going to be your, your career prospect. And these are the different classes that you have to take and this is how long it's going to take you. This is how much it's going to cost. That information is not, okay, I got it all. I'm going to go into work. That's not what that information is about. Okay. You say, okay, now I have to apply. I have to sign in. I have to take classes. It's going to be hard. I have to pull all-nighters sometimes. I have to do everything they tell me to get to accomplish what they're telling me. That's the way they think of a rabbi. You don't get everything a rabbi is teaching all of a sudden. Because he doesn't have shallow teachings, right? You follow a rabbi. You literally followed a rabbi in those days. There is no, there is no internet. There is no YouTube. There is no podcasts. So you literally have to follow behind him. You have to walk with him. You have to eat what he eats, drink what he drinks, and sit down to learn in everyday life situations what he has to teach you. And after years of learning, you know his teaching. You understand what he's teaching. So they didn't believe everything that he has to teach. They can't. Jesus never preached everything he has to teach in one moment. He just told the gospel, the good news. He just told people news. And if people believe the news, if they accept the news, and then they ask more questions. That's what Christianity is like. So, they may be much uninformed compared compared to most of us. What they just heard is, he is the one that God has sent. That's all they heard. What they just heard is, if you believe in him, you will be freed from your sins. They understand this. They understand this from the law. And they believed it. That's all they believed. How do I get saved from my sin? They don't know. What are you teaching Jesus? They don't know these things. So, Compared to some of us, they might be much uninformed. Or some of us in here may be saying, you know what, I'm in the same spot that they are in. I understand something. I believe in Christ. I know he's telling the truth. I can hear something in the gospel that the rest of the world cannot give me. But I don't know everything. I need to grow. So, think about our Christian life. If you are a Christian because you grew up in a Christian family, if you are a church because somebody brought you, 
if you come to church because it is a religious activity that you subscribe to, you might be saying, I don't know. I heard the gospel. I believe what I heard. And I was baptized and joined a church. That's why I'm here. Or my parents worshipped in this church. I was born and then I joined the youth group. If that's you, you are exactly where these Jews are in their belief. You're just beginning with Christ. If this message comes to you as a reminder, a new information, not a, not a new information, if you, if you feel like you're in a better spot than these Jews, great. That's actually a good thing. If you're in both places, that's good. Thank God. You don't have to be ashamed or you don't have to be prideful either either way. But if you know about it, are not doing anything about it. If you know so much about Christ, but it doesn't change your life. If you have already believed in Christ and you received it because you were in a Christian family and you're just, you're just tired of it, it doesn't mean anything to you anymore. That faith is not a life. That is a dead faith. It doesn't save. I really want to say that to you. Coming to this church does not save. Being indifferent when we're having biblical conversation, it doesn't save. It doesn't free you from your sins. It doesn't liberate you from your slavery. Your privileges are actually your, your cells, your prison cells doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, American or whatever. You are going to be stuck there. You're not free for the kingdom of God. So wherever you are, and some of you might be in a place where you're doing great, you're growing in the faith, thank God for that. You might be people who are like, I'm just a new believer, I don't know much, but I'm doing the best that I, I'm giving all of myself to the Lord, thank God for that. Not everyone is in a place where they're indifferent about the faith. I hope majority of you are not in that place. And I believe that. But only you know, only God knows where you are. Where any one of us are. But even if you know the truth and you're following Christ appropriately, we all need a constant encounter with this word that Jesus preaches in this place. You need to continue in the faith exactly as taught by the Lord here. So let me ask you, ask yourself this throughout the week and throughout your lifetime, honestly. What do you believe? How much do you know? I mean, if I ask you this, this question, what is the good news? What's the gospel? How, can you articulate it into one sentence? Or one paragraph? Can you describe what the gospel is? Who is Jesus? Like, what's your personal relationship with him like? What's your personal encounter with Jesus like? What's your answer to those questions? Do you even ask yourself those questions? I'm not saying, what is your relationship in theory? I know, I must have a personal relationship with Jesus, and that's how Christianity... No. I'm saying, how did that affect your life? What does that mean for you today? 
personally? How does that change you? What, how does that make you different from your classmates at school? From people who say, I don't believe. How does that differentiate you from people who clearly proclaim they're atheists? You know Jesus? Okay. How does that make you different? How does this thing change your heart as shown by how you think, how you feel, what you prefer, what you do with your time, how you use your phone, how you interact with your friends that are non-believers, how you interact with people who are believers, how you use the 168 hours of the week. How does it affect you? Did you know? Let me ask you this question. You have to be a student and a follower of Christ by the definition of the word being a Christian. Did you know? Being a Christian means being a disciple of Christ. Being a disciple means being a student and a follower, a doer of what you're taught. Did you know that? If you don't, let today be the first day that you know that. That's how salvation works. So you might be asking a very simple, straightforward, you're not, you're unapologetic. You know what? I just don't want to talk about all this jargon. Can you just get straight to this question? Are you telling me I must follow Christ as a student and a doer of the word in order to be saved? Let me say this as loudly as I can. Yes. Again, I will say it. Are you telling me I must be a follower of Christ, a student and a doer of the things that he tells me to do in order to be saved? Yes. If I have to cry about it, I would. Yes, nobody will be spared from that. Okay, you don't have to believe my word for it. What does Jesus say about that question? This is actually the main point of the text here. Unless you're freed from sin, you have no part in Christ. If you abide in my word, Jesus says, abide. Abide means to remain. It means to stay, to wait. He says, if you remain in my word, if you choose to stay in my word, and my word abides in you. My word is full in your heart. Your mind is full of scripture. Your mind lives out of scripture. Your mind is controlled by the words of Christ. He says. I can use, give you a simple example. My phone or my car for 10,000 different functions. Right? Okay, am I free to use my phone and my car however I want? For starters, if I speed, the police will stop. If I drive recklessly, I'll cause an accident. So apparently, I can't use my car however I want. There are ways to use your phone that will land you in jail, as well as that, is, that could be very abusive to people, right? Or destructive to yourself. So I cannot use these devices however I want. So I have at least legal restrictions. 
And then what other restrictions do I have? I don't use my, my phone to embarrass myself. There are social restrictions. I care about what people think about me, right? I don't want to use my phone to reveal my private information. I don't want to be used by scammers or whatever. But I'm asking you today, do you use your phone and your car in such a way the most important thing, the one important thing that matters to you is not all these things that I just described, but what Jesus thinks about how you use your phone. What Jesus teaches according to scripture about how you use your car. Is that what matters to you the most? If it's not, that's because you need to be a student of Christ. You need to have this scripture take over your life. You need to have the, the relationship that you have with Christ to take over all of your time and the purposes of your life, your desires and your thinking and your choices. That's what Jesus is saying. Do you get it? If you abide in my word, if my word is your fence around your life, if my word is the discipline that you follow, if my word is informing you on how to live, he says, then you're truly my disciple. You're truly a Christian. If my word controls you. Who is he saying this to? People who came to faith. He's not talking to non-believers here. He's talking to believers. He's talking to us who believe. John 15.1 Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, God takes away. How about the branches that are bearing fruit in Christ? God actually prunes. God does the same thing to people who are bearing fruit in the faith and not bearing fruit in the faith. You know what he does? He cleans them up so that they may bear more fruit. If they're bearing fruit. If they're not bearing fruit, then he actually takes them off the vine. Because they're consuming resources. And producing nothing. That's what you do to branches that are dead. If you're a believer, in order to stay alive, you need to have that abiding in Christ. If you're cut off from Christ, if Christ does not restrict your life, you're religiously a Christian. But that's you saying, I'm a Christian, not Jesus. Does Jesus say you're a Christian? Does Jesus say, you are dependent on me? When you say, Jesus is my Lord, does Jesus say, you are my faithful servant? Or are you just saying that because it sounds nice? Jesus says this clearly in verse 5 all the way to 8. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, is, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing, he says. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. I don't know if that comes to you clearly as I'm reading it and I'm hearing it. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. You know what you should ask for? For more of the Spirit to be able to do the will of God, to be transformed in your life. For more of your, the Spirit to be a slave of Christ. For more of the Spirit to be freed from the freedom that America presents to you that makes you a slave. If you do that, Jesus says you can bear fruit in the kingdom. 
If you don't do that, you have no power in yourself. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. This whole process of God pruning you, you have to be stuck to the vine, to Christ. You have to obey Him. You have to live in such a way of asking for the Spirit while you abide in His Word to be transformed. All of it is to prove when you said, I'm a Christian, I believe in Christ, did you really mean it? Are you truly a student of Christ? Are you really a slave of Christ? Are you really a follower of Christ? Is your life at all, at all affected by being a Christian? Do you turn off a movie because it's not appropriate in the sight of Christ, even though you're watching this movie all by yourself and nobody could see you? Jesus does. Jesus sees you more than you can see yourself. Jesus knows your heart. You have no clue what's in your heart. You have no idea what the motivations of your heart really are, but God knows every little detail of it. So if it bothers you, guess what? It bothers God a thousand times more. Does it affect you like that? Do you hang out with people and they can make you popular? You like the time you have with them? Whatever. They, they can give you influence. They can even protect you from being bullied by other people at school. And you say, because I am a believer, I can't do the things that you guys are doing. Can you do that? That would be painful. Right? Physically and in every way. Can you do that? If you're a grown-up, do you do your work in such a way that Jesus is watching do you represent them at home? Are you on time? Do you do your work even if your boss doesn't see you? Do you do, do you do your work as if you're serving Christ instead of a boss or an employer? Do you serve people in such a way that the love of Christ is coming out? That is what Jesus is talking about in this place. If you don't bear fruit like that, if Jesus being united to Jesus doesn't transform what is happening in your bodily life, in your everyday life, You may think you're a Christian. That doesn't make you a true Christian, though. So disciples must be proven as true disciples. If you're a student of Christ, you're going to pass. You're going to have amazing grades, or you're not a student of Christ. He's not, I don't know, a shoddy professor. He's not a careless teacher. He's not a teacher who doesn't care whether you fail or pass. He's the true teacher who transforms our lives. John says in 1 John 4, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he is in God. 16, So we have come to know and to believe that the, the love God has for us, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. You know what John is telling us? Two things. One thing is to abide in the Word of God means, to abide in God means to believe in Christ. To confess that Jesus is the Son of God, to actually live that out. And the second way is to love. We have received the love of Christ on the the love of God through the cross of Christ. We've seen the love of God when Christ died for our sins. To live in that love, to love one another and to love God, that's 
how we abide in the love of God. That's how we abide in God. So whoever loves God, John says in 21, must also love his brother. Jesus in the previous chapter, this is my commandment that you love one another that I have as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you, is what he says. You know what abiding is all about? It's to try to take you from being a sinner to a being a person who loves God, who loves other people. But you can't just get up and love people. The Spirit of God has to transform you. The work of Christ has to transform you. You can't love people. You love yourself. That's obvious. We all do. You can't love people in the way that God requires unless you abide in Christ and you are transformed by His Word. So, when Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. He means the nature of God, which is love. God loves everyone. Will become your nature. But it doesn't become your nature when you do whatever you want. Or you come to church as a religious activity. No, it, comes, it becomes your nature when you are restricted by the word of God. When the word of God controls your life, then through time, God will transform your heart and your life to be a loving person, both towards God and towards mankind, especially those who are believers, brothers and sisters. So what did Jesus say to his disciples? If you love my one another, the world will know that you are my disciples. Whoever says, I love God, hates his brother, is a liar. Still in the darkness. You guys might be saying to me or in your heart, what are you talking about? I love everyone here. At least I love my best friends. I'm going to tell you, the closest person that you have a relationship with, you don't love them. Look at them. Think about that person. They're probably like, in the same social circle as you. They're probably a person you aspire to be like. They're not too successful, so you don't feel too jealous about them. They're not too low in the social hierarchy, so that you might not be embarrassed by them. They're manageable. They don't tell you your sins all the time. They agree with you. Even when you're not dressing well, they tell you you're looking amazing today. Those are the people you hang out with. Those are the people that you say, I love them. Of course you love them. They make you feel good about yourself. But you don't love them even. You love yourself. I'm not saying, hear me, you guys are fake or anything. Nor am I saying, I'm loving. We're all in this condition as sinners, is what I'm saying. We don't love by our own nature. If Christ changes our hearts, we can truly love. It, it's going to be unconditional. It's, I'm not going to pick and choose who I love. I love people who are my enemies, who want to kill me, just like Christ loved his enemies. That's the kind of love that Jesus is talking about. And the kind of love that we should have for everyone. A random person shows up in your life, you love them. That's what kind of love we're talking about here. The kind of person who nobody looks at, either they're homeless or they are socially, 
you want to avoid that guy. That guy's weird. Or that, 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 that girl is like this way or that other way. She did all this stuff. She has a horrible history. You might want to even not attach yourself to that person because you're going to reduce your value or whatever. That's the kind of love Jesus is talking about. We cannot do that ourselves. I hope you're hearing the voice of Christ in this scripture. In the Great Commission, Jesus said these things. A disciple, for example, I want you to know this, is someone who's a learner, a student. So a Christian needs to learn what Christ is teaching in order to be transformed. That's what Jesus is teaching. This is what Jesus said in his Great Commission when he sent his 12 in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. How? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, they believe, they repent, and they are baptized. And then teaching them a bunch of lessons? No. To observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus gives the guarantee of his presence for us to teach people to live according to what he has taught after they they repent and they are baptized. So Jesus says, what is going to be the result of abiding in Jesus' word? Not only do you prove to be a disciple of Christ when you abide in him, you will know the truth, Jesus says. I'm not going to go through all the scriptures. But Matthew 5 tells us, blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. When you abide in the word of God, the word of God starts cleaning you from the influences of this world, the things that are taught in this world, your own desires, your own understanding, your own emotions, your own preferences, your own pick of friends. It starts to clean you up. You start seeing yourself as selfish. Wait, I'm friends with this person because they give me benefits? I'm a horrible person. I love this person, but like it doesn't mean this is the only person I should be friends with. I should change. It starts to cleanse you through and through. It starts to change you through and through. And when you're pure in heart, you start seeing God. You start seeing, wait, God is a loving God. He loves everyone the same. He's not affected by appearances or status or whatever. And you start to be more and more like that as you behold who He is. That's, by the way, the definition of eternal life. So you will know the truth. You know what the truth is? The truth is Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You guys remember that. Let me give you a picture. You know what the truth is? You see, for example, the truth could be whatever is popular right now. Everybody agrees. Let's say science or whatever. Right? The truth could be reality, you could say. You know what? Reality what is true underneath everything, what governs everything in reality. Or you could say the material universe, what I see, what I can touch, what affects my life, that's the truth. What if I told you there is a truth underneath all those things that you claim to be true, including the universe? The universe is actually kind of an avatar for the truth. Right? It came into existence out of what? A bunch of materials? Nothing. By what? The word of God. 
the word of God created the universe, but there's something deeper there. The word of God is not just the word of God. The word of God is who God is itself. The word of God is Jesus. The truth is more real than anything. Your social understanding of life, how you even understand gravity could change. You could say, you know, I can bet my bottom dollar the sun will come out tomorrow. I will tell you. You're naive if you do that. The sun comes out tomorrow if Jesus, if Jesus says it should come out tomorrow. Like one second later, the sun could go dark at the command of Christ. You know what I'm trying to say to you? Everything that we consider to be fact is not fact, even if it's physically true. Even something we know will happen for sure is not for sure unless we think God is in control. Unless in that universe we're considering, if the Lord wills, I will breathe my next breath. If we're saying the sun will come out tomorrow if the Lord wills, and I can bet on that, that's a good bet, we're talking. But you're, you're having a horrible bet there if you don't involve God in that thinking. So Jesus is saying, if you abide in me, your life is being transformed by this truth. If you're truly my disciples, eventually, eventually, God will have mercy on you and reveal himself to you. And the result is, Jesus says, the truth, when you know God, when you see God, when you are given the privilege of knowing God, the angels that are worshipping him in Isaiah 6, do not see God. They cover their eyes. They cover their bodies and they fly as they worship Him. They can only see what He does on the earth and say, Holy is God because the whole earth is full of His glory. We can refer His holiness from the things that He's doing on earth. You know what's given to us? In Christ, to face God right away. Holy, blameless, straight up, get to know who He is as children of God, and be partakers of His divine nature as children of God. Be able to take the nature of God into our lives. Become the communicable things about God become our nature. We are, we could be loving, we could be gentle, we could be, we could have access to all knowledge God wants us to know on this earth. You will not be losing anything in eternal life, you will be heirs of everything, basically. And judges of even angels is what Christ offers. So Jesus says, you know why this is very important? Especially because without the holiness that God requires, no one will see God. Because, Jesus says, whoever is a slave to sin, will not dwell in the house forever. Whoever is enslaved to sin, ask yourself, you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for how many years? Are you free from sin? Can you control yourself from not looking at your phone during service, let alone anything else? Can you control yourself from not cheating, from not talking when nobody's not seeing you? Grown-ups, can you control yourself and think about the future and suffer today to do good? 
Can you control yourself? I must do what I want. Can you say, I have to do the right thing at all times according to the word of God? Can you do that now that you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for a long time? Can you overcome the sins that you hate about yourself that kind of seem to have a hold on you? You're a slave to this thing? Can you control the stuff that you cannot tell your parents or your friends that you do in secret that you're ashamed of? Can you control it? Do you have any power over it ever since you became a Christian? Can you control the urge to bully people? Can you control the urge to gossip? Can you control the urge to spend hours wasting your life in front of a TV screen or your phone or whatever? Or trying to seek people's approval? Can you control these things? Jesus is saying when you know the truth, you'll be free from these things. When you know the truth, not only can you control this, you can help other people overcome that kind of stuff. And those things that I told you, that's what destroys human life every day. It destroys families. It destroys work relationships. That's why you get horrible service in a lot of places that you go to. Sin is our enemy. And not only does it do that, that's what sends people to hell. Only unforgiven sin kills. That's the only thing that kills. Only Christ saves from sin. What is the name of Jesus? Jesus is the one who saves his people from what? Hell? From what? Their sins. How does he do it? He saves them. He gives them faith. And he gives them discipleship. And he teaches them. And he transforms them. And he reveals himself to them that they may be freed from sin. And it's a whole life process. It's a lot of hard work. And there's even suffering in doing the right thing. But Jesus says, I have authority over all things and I'll be with you to the end of the earth. I'll make this happen for you. Trust me and discipline yourself according to the word of God. Trust in God. Trust in the grace that God gives to get what you need to get. Before I read the last scripture and finish, you know why I preach that every sermon that I could? That's where we all are. We all need to humble ourselves and realize this. We all think, you know, Christianity is easy. You know, I can, I can download it in two minutes and I'm done. If I ask most of you, how do you make tea? You're going to stutter trying to explain to me the process. How do you think you can grasp Christianity? The reality about heaven and earth and the creator of heaven and earth. In one sitting or in religious activity, you have to be sincere. You have to invest all of yourself into it. I mean, you have to at least believe that. And even if you do that, you're not going to get it. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you the gift of revelation. I'm going to reveal myself to you if you obey me. That's all he's saying. By obeying Christ, you cannot accomplish what he asks you. But because when you obey him, God is graceful to give you himself, he's able to free you. And I see all of you, and I love you. The Lord has done a lot to you. I know where you guys have been for the last five years, let's say. I know the shifts in your behavior and your nature and what you believe when you're down, when you're up, when you got, you know, to a certain age and you started behaving differently, and then some of you calm down and some of you just go crazy beyond that point. 
I'm not trying to say anything about you. I got nothing to say against you. But I ask myself all the time, do you have Christ? Are you like lost and alone? Do you look amazing from the outside and in your hidden room like you're depressed? You hate yourself? Or are you lost and enjoying yourself in sin that you just feel good and ultimately it lives you down? I promise you, it leaves you low. Everybody thinks you're doing great. You're, you're popular. You're great. But if you're, if you're honest to yourself, you find yourself lonely. You find yourself degraded. You find yourself stuck as a prisoner. I'm here to preach to you liberation, freedom. Christ is your freedom. Everything else might seem exciting right now. Even when you get old, you're going to laugh at some of the stuff that you thought was exciting. It's gonna be, you're going to be ashamed of the results of those things. I preach to you Christ, whom you will never be ashamed of. Everything that's in your heart, your desire, the joy that you want to have in life, it's found in Christ and Christ only. There's no power under the sun to free you from your slavery. Other than Christ and Christ alone. So I want to finish here. Let me read you what happened to the first believers who learned this truth about the gospel. Christ is my freedom. I can be freed from these things. They had their own problems in their own century, by the way. This is the book of Acts chapter 2. Now, when they heard this, they heard the gospel, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 people. They said there's a way to be liberated. What, what should we do to enter this path? They were given the privilege of repent and be baptized. And they, were, they repented and they were baptized. Did Peter stop there? He kept telling them the truth. He keeps discipling them. He keeps revealing the truth to them. It's not over. It's not like what a bunch of preachers might say to you, pray this prayer and you'll be fine for good. No, you're not good. Your assurance is not found in you and what you do. It's found in Christ. Okay, they're done, right? They got baptized. They repented. They believed. They were saved, it says, 3,000 souls. And then they even heard Peter preach even more. They're done, right? That's Christianity, isn't it? They're Christians. They're saved. No, they're not done. They continue to do the same thing the rest of their lives. It continues. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. That's fellowship right there, right? To prayer. Front line. And awe came upon Every soul, when they did those things, when they fellowshiped more, when they worshiped more, they started seeing God more. 
They started fearing God more. They started being mesmerized by it. You know how you're excited about everything in life? That excitement goes and that excitement turns to God. God becomes everything to you. He's more exciting than whatever you might be excited about today. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds of, to all and as any had need. And the day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they, refu- uh, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the number their number day by day those who were being saved. In short, they gave up everything they could give up, their time, their resources, everything. And they lost everything. Is that what it says? No. They they were joyful from within. You know how you would say, like, if only this person notices me, I'll be a happy person. I'll be popular, and then I'll be happy. I'll get this thing, this device, and I'll be happy. If I was friends with this group, I'll be happy. No, you won't. This is how you get joy. This is how you get freedom. This is how you get everything that your heart desires, but it's more important than that. This is how you have a relationship with the living God. That's more important than anything you can imagine or think or do. Let's pray. Lord, These words that you have spoken are heavy words, but they are so gracious at the same time. I pray that we do not take these words lightly. I pray that we can see from your word what you're saying. You say to the group of Jews that rejected you, you are of your father, the devil, who's a liar and a murderer. That's why you want to kill. That's why you are stuck in lies. Free us from that, Lord. Free us from skipping what you're saying to us and going back to our regular lives. Make each and every one of us kneel before you in our hidden room to pray before you, Lord, transform our lives. Each one of us to seek you from a sincere heart every day. There is no difference between what we desire for ourselves, what will give us joy and life, and what you desire for us, what you command us to do. They are one and the same. What glorifies you is what gives us life, what makes us happy, what gives us eternal joy and life. Create this heart in us that we may truly understand these things. I pray over the church, Lord. I pray over the church. Wake us up, Abba. Let not the things that we have in this world have a hold on our hearts, on our lives, the way we speak and the way we act. Instead, we ask that you have influence over us. That we ask that you give us the ability, the power to abide in your word. That's the only thing commanded of us. You do everything yourself, Lord. You even give us the power to abide in your word. You even gave us your word. It's a gift to us. 
now that we're given this privilege that we may abide in it so that it may free us from our sins that we may be proven to be true disciples that we may abide in your word even when the going gets tough lord even when other people ridicule us even when other people think as christians we're silly that we may abide in your word that we may persevere in your word that we may be suffer even if we suffer for doing the right thing that we may rejoice in our life so that we may know the truth that we may know you that we may have an understanding and a knowledge of god that we may be partakers of your nature and ultimately freed from our sins freed from the power of the devil freed from the power of death and sin that we may be liberated to worship you, to rejoice over you, to love one another, to love all of mankind. I ask this for the church, Lord. I ask this for each and every one of us in this church, Lord, and for those who you are going to call to this place in the future. I ask that you do this among us by the power of your word, Lord, by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, I ask these things. Amen.